Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hello and welcome. I'm Sam Delaney and this is The Reset, a mental health podcast without all the bollocks. What impact do your school days have on your mental health later in life? Personally, I went to a very ordinary suburban comprehensive in the 80s and generally enjoyed the whole experience. Mind you, the older I get, the more I realise that the seemingly small experiences I had back then still influence the way I sometimes act, think and feel today. My guest this week is the author Richard Beard, whose school days were very different to mine and to most people's. He went to a public boarding school in the late 70s and early 80s. As he explains in his fascinating new book, Sad Little Men, Private Schools and the Ruin of England, these old-fashioned institutions were often brutal places that nurtured emotional repression in the students. Which is worrying when you think that our current Prime Minister and a disproportionately large number of big figures in British law, media, politics and finance were all educated this way. There is a mystery around public schools that I've always found intriguing and I was delighted to speak to Richard about his book and his experiences and the emotional impact he thinks it had on him and on his contemporaries. I hope you enjoy listening to our chat. Richard Beard, welcome to The Reset. Hi Sam, thanks for having me. It's a real pleasure. Really enjoying your book. Um, fascinating stuff. Weirdly, I've, I think there is a there is a sort of a fascination generally um, with public school by those people who haven't been. I think that's sort of why people love things like the Harry Potter series, don't they? They sort of think of it as an as an exciting and fascinating and mysterious place. Do you find that when you tell people that you 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 went to public school, everyone wants to know loads about it? Well, it's a, it's it's an unknown to a certain extent. So therefore, um, people who who have gone there can bring back news from that strange place. Um, however, lots of them don't really want to go into too much detail um, for reasons which become clear in the book. Uh, I think also with because of that mystery, because people don't really want to talk about it. Um, certainly not to to people who've been outside it, because it does sound not just strange, but sometimes sort of downright demented. Um, 
that that uh, therefore kind of legends and mysteries can grow up around it, and therefore you have, you know, you have Harry Potter, and of course there's a big tradition of, of public school fictions as well, which do kind of glamorise the adventure and um, the daring do of, uh, of of various girls and boys who are in these schools, which is, that literature has been there through the 20th century and has added to the myth. Is there some stuff that you hear about public school? You think there's, there's just no way that can be true? People have, because it's so mysterious, people make up all sorts of mad things. Well, I'm not sure it's making it up so much. Is that there is, you know, well-established um, stereotypes about mm. public school? I mean, the two most obvious would be, first of all, um, uh, uh, in boys' schools, homosexuality—that everyone mm. who's been to public school has had some kind of homosexual experience—and um, then, of course, um, not so much a stereotype, but a, a part of public school kind of. Um, life which looms very large is sexual abuse as well mm. um, and a lot of stories that get told sort of concentrate on that um, and of course that's very important but it can obscure sometimes the fact that just the normal run of the public school life has its other problems um, because then naturally if there are stories of sexual abuse in certain schools people think yeah well that we ne- really need to focus on that but actually there's a much larger there are much larger questions that can be focused on as well which include that and that is part of it but it doesn't have to be the whole story and sometimes this idea of limiting the story has stopped a sort of wider truth getting out i think that is what i find really fascinating not just about your story in your book but about life really is that people traditionally when it comes to things like our emotional lives our mental health and so forth we're, we're so preoccupied with extreme trauma that we don't recognise the the problems that arise from what I call ordinary everyday pain. And you describe that ordinary everyday pain of life at, at public school um, very vividly. Uh, yeah, I mean, the day-to-day stuff. Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, it's something that I, I perhaps don't, a point I don't make strongly enough in the book, but, you know, I didn't have a particularly terrible time. Um, in some ways, I had a better time than most because I was good at sport and I was good at lessons and I was very good at the the required emotional repression as well. Um, and really what I'm talking about is that just the everyday features of um, private school life, especially boarding school, but I think it does spread out to other private schools um, because these boarding schools are the kind of um, pri- English private school in, in, in its purest form. Um, but I just want to describe that the everyday life, and I think that has lasting impacts, even if you even if you can't point to individual traumas, as you say, individual extreme traumas, it's, it's, it's the, the, the everyday situation in which you find yourself, the circumstances, which then have much longer lasting effects. One of the key things that comes across in it is that the way in which, you know, you're sort of actively trained or conditioned to repress emotion, whether that means kind of extinguish it completely or just become adept at hiding it. Um, But that's not something that happens by mistake. That, from what I can tell from your book, is historically what the public schools set out to do in order to breed leaders. Is that right? Well, there's kind of two aspects of it. That that's a kind of public aspect of it in terms of breeding leaders to to, to run an empire. Mm. Um, and it was thought that you would be able to lead better if you didn't feel too deeply about the people you were leading. Um, you could somehow make better decisions without emotion being involved. Um, but at a very personal level, just for those schools to run effectively without all the little children being in tears all the time you have to imagine small children aged seven eight turning up to these schools their parents leave they drive away and suddenly you know these children are on their own 
in a dormitory for the first time with complete strangers, naturally they feel very homesick. It's a natural emotional reaction to cry. And then the very first thing you learn is don't cry. You don't hide, you don't show your emotion because you will be picked on by the boys, say, who are a little bit older, have been there another term. They've already learned this lesson. And they know in order to project their own feelings of homesickness, they will then uh, mock those boys who are actually showing homesickness. So you learn to defend yourself by not showing your emotions. And that becomes an absolute essential building block of the boarding school process. Yeah, you, you say that, that, that blubber, being a blubber is one of the worst insults in that environment, right? Yeah, I think I say in the book as well, it's, you know, blubbing is a terrible thing. That's crying, but also being a sneak. So obviously my book is, is sneaking. I'm telling tales on this school, but when people tell tales, they're trying to, they're often they're crying for help. They're saying to adults, look, there's this thing going on, which is really disturbing me. Um, But if the, the teachers who many of whom have been through the same kind of education themselves say, no, sneaking is the worst thing. Then you're being told don't cry for help. So you're getting a double dose. Um, Don't show homesickness and then don't tell anybody you're feeling homesick. So don't feel it. Don't talk about it, repress it to the best of your ability. That's how you get on. That's how you, or in the words of the schools, you settle down. So you say that you were pretty good at that. You're pretty adept at that stuff. You picked it up quickly. So let me ask you, you're in your 50s now. Is that right? And uh, how, how long did it take you to start waking up to the fact that you had, uh, you know, the, the sort of more negative feelings that you'd had and the impact that they'd had, uh, that had had on you in adult life? Uh, well, I mean, in, in my own case, and this is a personal book in that sense, it is about my own experience and then extrapolating from that to, to some wider themes. But, you know, I, th- I think it was it was books that opened my eyes. I was reading these books, I was very keen on reading. It's one way of escaping from the, the, the confines of the school. And the more I read, and I was you know, a very serious reader, the more I realized, well, there are other ways to, to live. And a lot of books that you read, a lot of art forms that we experience in films good example as well the lesson or the moral of these films is well if you express yourself and you show and share your feelings you will achieve a connection with with another human being and that is redemptive and this is actually the best thing about being alive it's, it's essentially loving other people and connecting to other people and this wasn't what i was experiencing every day so i think the books were the first intimation that you know things didn't have to be this way um, and I took literature very, very seriously. Um, and then once the um, schools had finished and I went off to university, then, of course, there is more of a, um, uh, a diversity once you get to university and you start seeing that other people live in different ways. And I think if your mind remains open, you pretty quickly realize that these other ways of living are more rewarding. Because in the end, it's very, very limiting to keep going back to repressing what you're feeling and not sharing anything with anyone. When did you allow yourself, I suppose there's a a rational realisation that there is another world, perhaps that other world is is superior in some ways or, or, you know, more, more fulfilling in some ways. But emotionally, I guess what I'm saying is, when did you allow yourself to start feeling sad? Because presumably the whole idea at school is you do not allow yourself to acknowledge that you are sad. No, there's that. And there's also the fact that the way one way you'll avoid this is just by achieving a lot of material success. You know, mm. you'll, you'll go through and, and uh, politics or the law or, or one of these professions and, and be very successful. And that's what will make you happy. Mm. So I think 
it, the, the real realization that there's these deep seated habits that need to change come with experience of, of failure, experience of professional failure. Uh, they come with age. They come not just with the failure of a career, but say the failure of relationships. Um, you know, the first couple of times you have a failed relationship, you can put it down to all sorts of causes. Um, and we were also trained to, to blame other people for things going wrong. Mm. Um, but the more it happens, the more if, if you have developed some self-awareness and speaking for myself, you start thinking there's a pattern here. You know, why do I keep on failing in these ways um, to achieve the things I want to achieve, which wasn't really material success. It was more um, success in, in, in relationships and success in writing books and, and having that openness, which is required to bring the authenticity, which communicates itself to a reader. Mm. And that took many years for you to see that do you, do you look around you i mean a lot of it is about your analysis of people in the public eye not least david cameron boris johnson and the way that they you know have, have run the country do you think there's a lot of people with similar backgrounds to yours who don't who just don't ever reach that point and yeah, they I... stick to the things they were taught and and that seems to just get them through everything i i, I think that Absolutely, which is why I uh, I feel that the book is important and why I wrote it. It's if it was just me, I could just get on with it and try and live better. But Cameron and Johnson and there are other well known figures, especially in political life, who who people recognise. Well, actually, Cameron and Johnson started school boarding school in the same year as me in 1975. So I know that the kind of um, emotional. Um, uh, I don't think you could, you could almost call it emotional abuse that, that that we went through in boarding school applies to all of us. Now you deal with it in different ways, but one, one, of, one of the ways you don't deal with it is by following the pattern through achieving success in the way that that is intended. Um, and then you don't really have to, to deal with the emotional aftermath because you, everyone around you says, look, you've done well, you're doing well, look, you're, you're doing what you were trained to achieve, which is to lead other people. But part of that assumed superiority comes with assuming that everyone else is inferior. Now, if you're allowed to continue or you allow yourself to continue to do that because you are in a position of, of power, then you never have to change. Um, how that transfers into private lives, again, that would just be a speculation. But it's um, I, th I think there are uh, always that, that let's say there would be there are journeys to be made by public school boys who um, are successful and don't therefore need to be self-aware in the way that public school boys who experience failure have to make those journeys. Almost everyone, everyone, even those who look successful from the outside looking in, all of us experience failure to one degree or another. Um, uh, what you're describing, I suppose, makes me think that these people are, are really don't see it coming, and you 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 wonder how they cope. I mean, how what did you think when you saw David Cameron the day after the Brexit result? Um, you know, resigning and then turning away and sort of humming that little song to himself famously as he walked back to number ten. What's your analysis of that as someone with shared like experiences? Do you think that that would have come as a shock? Because what you're saying is this is the failure that he was taught would never vi be visited upon him. Or, as some people say, do you think that his, his breeding, his background, his education would have made him think, oh, well, doesn't matter, on to the next thing? 
much more like that and and that's one of the reasons why i wanted to write the book because i just recognized that behavior straight away and that behavior was very much in the pattern of you learn early on not to take things too seriously because it's quite a vicious enclosed world of boys without parents um uh, i mean it's not it's not lord of the flies but it is full of um uh, jostling for position and jostling for positions within the hierarchy. Now, one way you protect yourself from being attacked is by just not treating anything seriously. Because if anyone sees you treat something seriously, that's a point of vulnerability mm. and someone can come at you later. So the best thing to do is to pretend you take nothing seriously at all, which keeps you sort of floating above events. And I think that's what you saw there with Cameron when he turns away. It's kind of, oh, yeah, well, I never took it seriously anyway, you know, and I, I can just go on and do something else. Um, and I, I recognize that behavior. I mean, there are obviously social reasons well where he probably thinks, well, it won't make much difference to me because he's very confident in his, you know, in, in his, his material position in, in, in societies that there is a, a safety net there. But then that's probably true of, of most privately educated children is that there is a financial safety net. But I don't think it was that so much as this attitude that, you know, well, I never took it seriously anyway. You can't hurt me by telling me that I've messed everything up because, you know, it wasn't even serious to me. So, you know, you're the fools, not me. And therefore you're always pushing back the responsibility and the the idiocy, if you like, the foolishness onto other people. You know, I'm not the fool, you're the fool. It's a very schoolyard way of seeing life. Mm. But that could, and, and that presumably even from your own experience, when you say whether it was in the early stage of your writing career or in your relationships, did you respond in that way to begin with? Were you kind of like, there? It's not my fault. I'm doing everything right. This is, yeah, this is the to, fault of other people who just don't understand because they're, what, too stupid or? Well, that, that's why you have to wait long enough for the patterns to start, like, really knocking on your forehead to tell you, no, it's not, you know, it's not someone else. It's you. Um, and that's why I think that the, the idea that something is wrong and needs correcting comes in later in life. Um, and one of the things I'm interested in, I write about the book is that you're, the schools themselves grading these, these, these kids when they're, you know, 18 and they're always very proud of their percentage of A and A stars at A level and who gets to what university. And therefore, you know, the parents have got their money's worth because look, we've got this many going off to Oxford and Cambridge. Mm. Um, but in fact, you need to look at what happens to these kids when they're, 30 and when they're 40 and when they're in their mid 50s and then you start seeing a very different picture because uh, and again i mean I've, i trace a couple of these stories in in the book there are a lot of people who are not coping so we see these high profile people who are in positions of power as intended mm. um but there are a lot of people who might even be very successful at the beginning of their careers and then gradually these realizations start to dawn that they're not coping with life very well and they don't cope um uh, with quite kind of serious consequences and, and their mental health consequences. So you, your contemporaries, people you know from that background, how rife is things like depression and addiction? Well, I, I, I write about a, a friend of mine who uh, who kills himself and then find out because of donations which are made afterwards to another charity, that, that to, which was to another boy who killed himself, and then I come across other stories. That's, again, a kind of extreme uh, level but you know it does just show that the, these schools are not a kind of perfect uh cure for all the ills of life and i think one of the things that encourages parents to send kids to private school is this sense of protection 
know, nothing can go wrong. If they if if you go to private school, your your future is more likely to be certain. You're more likely to be safe. And there's a sense of safety, keeping kids safe from well, they're almost keeping kids safe from modern Britain, from modernity, you know, mm. just just preserve our children in these very safe spaces, safe spaces, um, and then all will be well for the rest of their lives. And it's a kind of natural parental instinct, and certainly the schools appeal to that instinct. Um, but first of all, you know, emotionally, it's not a safe space, uh, which is one of, one of the things I wanted to write about. Um, but also, you know, these schools can't protect everyone all their lives. It's just not possible. Um, so they're actually acting on a, on, a, on a slightly false premise there. And it's not helpful to do that anyway, to protect people, because that's it's, it's an isolated world. You just can't carry around. If you, if you try and carry that around with you for the rest of your life, something's going to get through it at some point. And then you are just not in a position to cope at all. So it plays a lot on fear. What have your parents said to you? What conversation have you had with them about what motivated them to educate you this way? Yeah, but I think the, the the fear is is part of the motivation. When I, uh, my dad's dead now, but I talked to my mum and I interview her in the book, so she's in the book. The conversation we had, and and she said it was his choice. Um, and he ran a building company in Swindon, and he, for him it was very much a question of social mobility as well. Is that he didn't feel that he kind of got out of. Um, you know, his own background, he, he was working in the family business. He lived just around the corner from his own dad. He sort of hadn't got out in the way that he wanted to get out. Um, uh, but because the building business um, was generating, you know, a decent amount of money in the, in, in the sixties and seventies, he had this cash, which he could spend. And it was for him, it was like a tax. He was paying this tax in order to get his kids a better life than he had had, that we would have access then to, you know, the better. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Places and people in, in, in the country. And that was his motivation. Um, but when I, when I was researching the book, I came across a phrase which I think is feels true to me from my own experience, which is a lot of what these schools do is it's instead of encouraging upward social mobility, it just um, stops downward social mobility. So even if you, you're sort of a bit sh- short of money, if you're in the class that has used these schools in the past, if you can just get your kids in there again, it will stop them going down. So again, there's another defensive reason to send kids to the school. It's not because you want to get on and up. It's because you don't want to go down, which is another type of fear as well. So this fear is, you know, it's in the system. It's a very sort of two-dimensional way of just looking at life, isn't it? Because it's all about the practicalities. 
what what you're saying is it's everything you're thinking will they have the right social status will they have a good career will they have money etc cetera, etc cetera. um so no kind of reflection on you know any other uh, you know any other factors that might affect your experience as a human being or your happiness as a human being beyond those very practical considerations yeah and also very binary as you described there is is that you know things are, are good or bad you know you're up or you're down mm. um you're successful or you're you're a failure and it is very um uh, i think avoidant of that all the nuanced areas there are in between and that's why in the in the subtitle put private schools and not just boarding schools is because in any private school there's still that binary um disconnection you're saying there's there's them the ones who don't go to private school and there's us and we go to private school you're already making a binary um uh, dislocation there and and the assumption is always there that you know you've come to private school that you are somehow you're hoping for better but the idea of being better is again implicit in that mm. in that separation is and you're segregated from everyone who doesn't want to be better and then that's that already creating problems, I think, um, because you're you're separated from the wider community. And I think it's very hard for, you know, the country to move on as a kind of progressive place, while there is this 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 class of people who are segregated from an early age to to think in terms of being better, even if many of them or some of them can 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 then dissociate themselves for that. That is implicit in the idea of a private school that you are there to be better. It opens up that that suggestion. But really, this is relevant to all of us, even those of us who, who didn't go to these schools, in that we all live in a world where we, we receive messages, perhaps not so intensively, but we all receive messages every day that our happiness, uh, our worth, our value is based upon these things. You know, what social circles we are in, what career we are in, how much money we have, the size of our car or whatever. There's not much, there, there are fewer messages about, you know, slightly deeper emotional uh, factors in, in, our, in our human experience. So really, I think the sort of points you're making, although you, you focus on, on the experience of public schools, this, this is sort of universal to everyone living in the 21st century in a country like ours, isn't it? Yeah, I think it probably, uh, I mean, I think that's right. Um, but also those ideas are certainly in a country like ours, as you say, they are filtering down from the top. Um, and I do make the point in the book that I'm talking about a specific period, um, which is 1975 to about the early to mid 80s, um, where these kind of things were, were more extreme than they are today. Now, I don't want to talk about the, the schools today in too much detail because I don't know about them in detail. It's not, not my experience. But I mean, as you'll know from what you've read already, the experiences we had in that period were extreme and mm. things did change after 1989 when the Children Act came into force, when the boarding schools had to um, be more observant of um, it's, a, it's a, a, a European law of human rights there, or it's, it's a human rights category which comes in for children in care, which ha which applies also to boarding schools. So that Children Act in 1989 did change the nature of these schools to a certain extent. So we were there before then, if you like, before the age of safeguarding, um, as it's called now. So there was no, you know, you're, you're paying not to be safeguarded. Um, and it was and, and the extreme, the extremity of, of what we experienced does make it, I think, unique and worth recording and bringing the news back from that point. I mean, just as one example, you know, we had 
hustings for elections in our enclosed private school, um, which was not open to the scrutiny of the outside world. We had boys standing up and making the case um, for, for the British Union of Fascists. Um, and that was something which was considered, you know, perfectly acceptable. And that's part of our education as well. So there are extremes there which perhaps no longer apply, but they stay important because those attitudes, which were part of our everyday life and therefore impact us, um, then you can trace that the, if they if they're still in my mind and still sort of circulating for me, then that must be true of, of, of men of my generation who are now in charge. And so, if you're saying, "Well, this is a thing which is in throughout society," it filters down in the same way as you know, in the in the model of economics, money is supposed to filter down from the top. I mean, I think attitudes filter down from the top as well. Mm. Um, and if we're going to change those attitudes through society, we have to have a look at, you know, what is dripping down on us from the top in a not very nice way. There's an empathy. What, what you're saying really makes me feel like, you know, generations of of young men, including the ones who are, who are now the most powerful in the country, we're conditioned to have a bit of an empathy deficit. I think I, I, I find it hard to look in my, my own experience to, to see how that wouldn't be the case at the time you, you come out from it. Now, that doesn't mean you can't try and reverse that later on. Um, and, and some people, in a way, um, live their whole lives trying to compensate for that. Um, but the way that we were segregated um, in that period in particular, so we had no exposure to um, the diversity of Britain as it changed through the 70s and the 80s. That's a, a racial diversity. We had no exposure to women. Um, and we had no exposure to people who couldn't afford to send their kids to these schools. Mm. So that's three major categories of people who make up the most of the country who really we didn't have to bother with. And then suddenly you're let loose age 17, 18, and you've not really had to had to deal with anyone else except people like you. Um, and I think you see that um, in public life when when some of these some of these boys, I still think of them as boys because I think they are they have a sort of frightened little boy inside them. Um, they're still deal with everybody as if everybody is a public school boy from 1977, you know, and it's um, it, it's kind of noticeable in, in, in the way that they behave in their public lives. I mean, I look at it and I think, well, you know, if you I remember reading John Ronson's The Psychopath Test. And they say, you know, so many world leaders and captains of industry and all the rest of its CEOs have demonstrate the characteristics of psychopaths. And, and a lot of that is to do with a lack of empathy. Part of me felt, well, that kind of makes sense, because how could you possibly run a country and, you know, make decisions every day, sometimes snap decisions that impact upon the realities of millions of people's of lives? If you had too much empathy you would never sleep and you would never make a decision. So there is something to be, I can see why these public schools, especially in the days of empire, thought we need boys who are just going to be able to get on with stuff. You know, is, do you see any advantages to that side of, of, you know, of character when it comes to people who are going to run the country or, or run huge companies that, that employ thousands of people? Um, I, I mean, I, I understand what you're saying. I think that was the belief in, in, in the time of empire is that, uh, you know, if, if you want to make big decisions for the British Empire, it's very important not to feel about the, anything about the effect they might have on other people. Mm. Um, but we're either, you know, now we're living with the consequences of that. And increasingly, 
um, will do so is that, you know, life is long, as they say in France. You know, there's things that come back to haunt you. Um, I'm trying to think whether, you know, you need to have one special psychopath who can be in charge of, of everyone else who's not a psychopath. But that doesn't really <laughs> seem like a very good solution to any problem. Um, and also you've got to think it's not just the psychopath at the top. I mean, then you're saying, well, okay, we're accepting that 70% of judges will be psychopaths. That's the number who are privately educated, currently privately educated mm. from a research paper in 2019. Do we want 70% of psychopathic judges? I don't know. Do we want um, over 50% of people in the legal profession to be psychopaths? Uh, you go through all these, you know, do we want over half of the England cricket team to be psychopaths? It's like you go through and you think, well, maybe not so much, you know, we don't, not so many psychopaths, please. Otherwise you'll end up with a country that looks a bit like Britain. Um, <laughs> so you think the psychopath, <laughs> the idea of these places being the breeding grounds of psychopaths is not an extreme way of looking at this? Well, no, I don't think it is in the sense that this lack of empathy was, I mean the, I, I really like the, the Ronson idea as well but the you know the lack of empathy is something I think which was thought to be useful for leaders during the empire there's a good um, example of where this came into you know where you, where you can see this is useful is that the first kind of reports of um, emotionally damaged public school boys come in the first world war when the the, the, the therapist who looked at shell shock um, William Hulse Rivers he noted that the public school trained officers in the First World War um, were so good at hiding the emotion of fear that it was as if they didn't even feel it. And um, he actually noted that down. And that's the first sort of observation of this. Mm-hmm. You know, when when um, s- s- psychoanalysis and psychiatry was growing as a, as a field, straight away they start looking at you know, public school boys because it's quite interesting because it's extreme. Now, in the First World War, you can see he makes that observation but if you're fighting in the trenches of the Somme, it's not really a problem. In fact, it's probably an advantage, um, you would think, um, to, to, to both not feel the fear, uh, not show the fear first, and therefore not feel the fear. But you know, as, as is well known now, those um, soldiers who then um, experienced um, the Somme and, and, the, and the First World War gradually had... Um, and there were the after effects of that came out more, more slowly later as it came. That's why there was the study of shell shock because they were psychologically damaged um, by the way that they dealt with it, just as people who didn't hide the fear were damaged from it. So in the long term, it didn't actually help them. But in the short term, if you want to kill the enemy um, from a trench, then um, it was quite useful. So it has uses, but they're not really uses that perhaps we want to to foster as as a major national project. What do you think needs to happen? I mean, you know, there are organisations that that feel that we, whilst not necessarily going as far as to make this this kind of these kind of schools illegal, you know, we could have. I know that like in Finland, they the private education barely exists because they haven't made it illegal, but they've more or less created an environment where that's so prohibitive to it. Do you think this is this this is something we need to do to be a more progressive country? Yeah, I think it's the segregation which is the problem. Um, and while uh, people in positions of power continue to to use these schools and pay for their children to go to these schools, they don't have a vested interest in the state school system. And I think that's a problem. And if you like, that's quite a conservative worldview, which I'm expressing there. I'm saying they have to have a personal interest in state education to actually improve it and keep an eye on it and be vigilant about it being a very high standard, which is, I think, what happens, say, in Finland. Um, 
And until that happens, I can't see it changing because anything that happens to state education, anyone, you know, although there are people in positions of power who, you know, it, deep in themselves, however they may think they're involved in education, but deep in themselves, they know it's not going to make any difference to them because they've paid their money and behind the walls of the private schools, their kids are still getting what they want for their kids as a parent, you know, as a caring parent and they, you know, and they, they care for their children's education. But until that care is more widespread because politicians all have a vested interest in a state education, I can't quite see how it's going to change. How have friends and, and other public school boys reacted to this to you personally? Well, I think, I think there are, there are, there are two reactions um, that, that, that seem to be, you know, the strong reactions, which I've had. One is, there are um, critics, and this is this will be true of some reviewers, I think, who just will not accept that their education has in any way damaged them. Um, and they're very clear on their position. They don't want to think about it. They don't want to examine it. Um, and therefore, this book just becomes, you know, a, another um, sort of irritating fly for them to swat away and then carry on um, merrily um, uh, uh, trying to follow in the footsteps of their own fathers. Uh, and then far by far in the majority is a majority of a lot of um, contact from people who have been um, very appreciative of the book. And they say, yeah, I felt, you know, I, I felt these things and I feel that someone needs to express them. Um, and part of the, the education is not to express it, is to keep quiet. You know, you don't put your head up because if you put your head up, someone's going to knock it off. Like the um, mafia. It's very much like the mafia in that sense. I think that there is a kind of omerta there. Mm. You don't really, you know, because there, there's guilt involved in it as well, because in a lot of cases, the parents have made financial sacrifices. Certainly nearly all children have been told it's for your own good. Mm. Um, and we're doing it for you because, because we love you. That's what the parents say. And therefore, if you say, actually, it wasn't great, you're questioning your parents' love. You're saying they made a mistake. It's a really hard thing to do. So it's not just a murder among... Um, people have had that education. It's it's a betrayal of your own parents, and that's a really hard thing to do. But the response I've had has been you know, overwhelmingly a kind of sigh of relief to say, at last, somebody's talking about this. And then, of course, I've had, it's been very gratifying to have people get in contact and just say, yeah, it's really interesting to see this new perspective on these schools, where, where you started. Just I didn't know this about it in this detail, and it's just very interesting. I think it's fantastic, but I guess the last thing I want to ask you is how how are you? Do you still think it it impacts upon you and just your happiness and your mental health day to day, or do you think you've conquered the demons that that you might have picked up during that those times? Uh, no, I, I, I think it's always dangerous to say you've conquered demons. I mean, they're called demons for a reason. They're quite resilient mm. and they're good at coming back. Um, and it's interesting in my reaction to some of the, the responses to the book is I can still feel myself sometimes cowering almost and thinking, oh, I shouldn't have done that. You know, the big boy's going to come and get me now. <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and that's, and it's kind of that. So there's, it's still there and it, and it requires a um, sort of constant, it's just self-awareness really of reason, you know, it wasn't that the, whatever happens to you and your child is going to be quite deeply ingrained and especially in education, because the whole point of an education is to ingrain deeply certain values, knowledge, um, a good way of progressing through adult life when it arrives. So the whole point of it is to influence you. So it's a very difficult thing to start to start kind of uh, reversing, to turn around and say, well, no, I'm going to educate myself 
and, and get rid of this formal education I had. Um, so no, it's not, it's not over. You don't write a book and, you know, put it on a shelf and it's all done and dusted. Um, and part of it was thinking, you know, I look back on some of those things, as you say, which are in the book, and I thought, this, this is unbelievable. You know, and I was in denial about it. And then I looked at it and said, well, yeah, it's unbelievable, but it's true. And this is what it was like in that period. Um, and as much as anything, it is just that awareness, just facing up to it. So, you know, this actually happened and it happened to me and it happened to boys like me. And we really should, you know, give this a bit of thought. To be honest, I was just astounded by the fact that they kept a, a, a log of your bowel movements every morning. And I actually uh, told my 14-year-old daughter of that the other day. <laughs> when she was complaining about the policy at her state school of where they didn't let you go to the toilet during, during lesson. And she was saying, I think that's a real, that's an affront to my human rights. You know, they've got this mad role. And I said, well, I agree, but bloody hell. I said, you don't know the half of it. I'm reading this book at the moment where they used to have to come out and report back with a tick or a cross as to what they'd been doing in the toilet every morning. Absolutely. It's just small details like that are absolutely astounding to most of us. Yeah, and, and, and treated as, as utterly kind of, they're normalised, you know, at the time. We were going to school, they tell us that's what we're doing and, and that's what we did. And clearly the parents, the teachers, everyone's implicated in this. There's a teacher with a clipboard, you know, they, they, they have to go and sit there every morning outside the toilets. So you know, the whole kind of institution is, you know, is, is, is implicated in that normalisation. And that therefore that's why it's quite hard to start examining it. Maybe it's easier to examine it 30 years later. It certainly was very difficult at the time. Well, Richard, thanks ever so much for your time. It is a wonderful book. Um, I suggest everyone goes out and buys it. It's such a fascinating look at such an influential part of our society. Um, Sad Little Men, Private Schools and the Ruin of England. Um, Thanks ever so much, Richard. Great, Sam. Thanks very much. There you go, Richard Beard. He might have grown up differently to you or I, but... He has the courage and insight to look back with real honesty on his school days and recognise the damaging effect that they had on him. We've all got stuff in our childhood that shapes our emotional responses to stuff in adulthood. I can't begin to imagine what it would have been like to have been separated from my family for months on end and chucked into the middle of a bunch of strangers in a cold building in the middle of nowhere when I was that age. I mean, I got homesick on a week's residential football camp in Essex when I was 12. If you like listening to Richard, I really can recommend his book, Sad Little Men, which is out now and offers so much jaw-dropping detail and insight to the sometimes demented public school experience. Let me know what you think of our chat by dropping me a line via samdelaney.substack.com and remember to subscribe while you're there if you want to upgrade to premium and get extra newsletters, early podcasts and access to our thriving chat forums, then do that as well. It's only a fiver a month after all. Until next time, gang, be lucky and don't let the dickheads get you down. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. 
Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.